Father God, we do thank you for this uh, series in Samuel that we've been looking at over these past months. And we do pray as we bring it to a conclusion this evening that uh, you would uh, remind us of many of the lessons that you have taught us. We do pray that you would help us to see clearly the state of our hearts. Help us to see clearly our need of a saviour. And Lord, fill us with gratitude for the mercy that you have shown us through our Lord Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. When you're uh, driving along and uh, somebody very kindly pulls in to let you go past, I wonder how you acknowledge uh, your gratitude to them. I guess in this country it's normally a sort of thank you. Um, but so uh, we were uh, traveling in Italy recently on holiday and um, different country, different culture. And uh, as they're driving, they have a slightly different sign. They're driving along and this is very cool Italian. So I thought I would give this a go. You know, as they say in Rome, do as the Romans do. And although we weren't quite in Rome, um, it was Italy. So I'll give... Give this a go. Unfortunately, uh, I got a little bit mixed up. I a bit of confused my British way of showing my gratitude with my Italian. And um, instead of doing either of them, I ended up going. Now, in case um, you're not aware what that's, I mean, that basically means loser. So to show my gratitude for somebody pulling into to the, the side of the road to let me pass, I had said loser. Now, in this passage, we can see clearly who are the losers, can't we? Um, We've read of so many battles between the Philistines and Israel throughout the book, and now it appears that the Philistines have finally won. They've killed Israel's king, Saul. They've killed his sons. They've routed their army. They've um, taken over their country. And if Israel are the losers, then surely... Their God is also a loser. It's not exactly what we would call a happy ending, is it? And I don't know how I drew the short straw to preach on this one. Um, But it may be quite similar to how we feel today in a country um, like the the UK. It's okay when we come here to to church, we feel good, we feel encouraged, we're with one another, we share the same beliefs. Um, But as we look at the nation around us, We see church attendance declining. We see Christian values being eroded, considered outdated. Christians are being discriminated against. To be a Christian is considered odd. It may feel like the battle is lost and we are the losers. It grieves us, or it should grieve us, to see how God's name is dishonored. And so the question I want to consider this evening as we look at this last chapter and just bring together all the lessons we've uh, learned from this book over the last couple of months is how do we bring honor to God's name? And particularly in a situation where it feels like he has been dishonored. How can we pray, hallowed be your name and live that out in our lives? We're going to be looking at various passages, um, reminding ourselves of some of the lessons we've learned. So have your Bibles ready as we uh, go back and come forward to to the final passage we're looking at this evening. Well, the first point I'd like to make is that God's name is honoured when we trust 
and obey him. The events of 1 Samuel, as you know, take place at a, a low point in the history of Israel. They start at the time when the judges were, were ruling and we're told everyone did as they saw fit. In other words, they didn't follow the instructions of God and they didn't keep his covenant. And the start of the book, not even the priests, uh, Hophni and Phinehas, the sons of Eli, were obedient to God. And so going back to chapter 4, we read the account of how God allowed the Philistines to execute his judgment on them, how they captured the Ark of the Covenant, and they killed 30,000 Israelite soldiers, including Hophni and Phinehas. However, Samuel, called by God, is then appointed by him as Israel's leader. And we have a period of peace when God's name is honored by his people. And let's just turn to chapter to 7, because this is an encouraging moment in the, in the history of Israel. Verse 4, we're told, Then all the people of Israel turned back to the Lord. Sorry, verse 2. They repented. And Samuel made clear to them what repentance looks like in practice. It requires faithfulness. It requires obedience. Verse 3. So Samuel said to all the Israelites, If you are returning to the Lord with all your hearts, then rid yourselves of the foreign gods and the Ashtoreths and commit yourselves to the Lord. Serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. God was faithful to his promise, and the next time the Philistines came up to attack, they are routed, and all the towns that they've taken are returned to Israel. And we're told that throughout Samuel's lifetime, the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines. A faithful leader and an obedient people. But as we go into chapter 8, we're told that as Samuel was growing old, he appointed his sons as Israel's leaders. And they didn't follow his ways. And so it wasn't long before the Israelites came to, to Samuel and asked him to appoint a king for them. A king like all the other nations had. Now, why was that such a big mistake? Because they already had a king. Do you remember we looked at that? Their king was God. Why do they need a human king? By having a human king, they were saying, actually, we don't trust that God will provide for us. We don't trust that he will protect us. They're being unfaithful. Now, Samuel warns them of the risk of following a human king instead of God, but they don't listen. And so Saul is appointed as king. And if you flick on to chapter 12, to that farewell speech that Samuel made in verse 20 of chapter 12, he says, Do not be afraid. You have done all this evil, yet do not turn away from the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. Do not turn away after useless idols. They can do you no good, nor can they rescue you, because they are useless. And in verse 25, yet if you persist in doing evil, both you and your king will perish. So we have unfaithful leaders and a disobedient people. And in chapter 13, we see Saul's lack of trust in the Lord as he becomes king. There's that battle against the Philistines, yet another battle. And what happens before he goes into battle, he's told by Samuel, wait seven days for me to arrive and I will 
offer the burnt offerings to the Lord. Don't do anything until I get there. But Saul's waiting. His men are getting impatient. They start to desert, and so he panics. He decides he can, can, no, can wait no longer, and he makes the offering himself. And remember what Samuel says to Saul when he arrives in verse 13? He says, you've done a foolish thing. You've not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. If you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. But now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him ruler of his people. And then we go into chapter 15 and we see Saul's greatest failure. 400 years or so previously, the Amalekites had attacked Israel when they came out of Egypt, when they were quite vulnerable. And they continued to wage war on them ever since. God had promised that justice would one day be done. And Saul was the person to execute that justice. He's told to wipe them out. But Saul decides he knows best. He spares their king Agab. He spares the best of the cattle and the sheep. Samuel confronts him again. He asks him, why didn't he obey the Lord? And Saul tries to justify himself by saying, well, we brought back the plunder and then we offered it as a sacrifice to God. What is wrong, surely, in that? And then remember those verses from chapter 15, verse 22. As Samuel replies, does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination, and arrogance like the evil of idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. Saul is an unfaithful and he's a disobedient king. When we disobey God, it's usually because there's something else that is more important to us. And uh, what was that for Saul? Well, Saul confesses. He says, I have sinned. I violated the Lord's command and your instructions. I was afraid of the men. And so I gave in to them. He was afraid of the men. He was more concerned with pleasing people than pleasing God. And even after seemingly repenting of this sin, he still shows that his heart is in the wrong place. Have a look at verse 30 where he says, I have sinned, but please honor me before the elders of my people and before Israel. What is more important to him is the honor of his own name rather than the honor of God's name. And at that point, Samuel anoints David as the future king, and the Spirit of the Lord departs from Saul. Well, as we carry on in, in Samuel, as we get towards the end in chapter 28, that we looked at a couple of weeks ago, we saw how the Philistines once again gather their forces to fight against Israel. And this time, when Saul saw the Philistine army, we're told in verse 5, he was afraid, terror filled his heart, he inquired of the Lord, but the Lord did not answer him. God is no longer with him. And so in desperation, Saul does something which is prohibited by God. He consults a medium to find out from Samuel, what should he do? 
And Samuel gives him, remember that terrible prophecy that um, he will lose the battle against the the Philistines and that he and his sons will be killed. And as if to somehow put off the the disaster, we leave the scene of the eve of the battle and in chapter 29 and 30 we switch scenes to find out what David is up to. But we can't avoid the inevitable. And when we rejoin the, the action in chapter 31, it's all over. In one sentence, the, the outcome of the battle is described. Now the Philistines fought against Israel. The Israelites fled before them and many fell dead on Mount Gilboa. And then it goes on to give some of the detail. First of all, Saul's sons are killed, Jonathan, Abinadab and Malkishua. And then Saul himself is critically wounded, and in order to be, avoid being abused in death by the Philistines, he kills himself after his armor-bearer refuses to do so. And his armor-bearer falls on his own sword. The rest of the Israelites are watching from across the valley. They see all that is, all is lost. They abandon their towns, leaving them for the Philistines to come and occupy. Philistines find Saul's body, they cut off his head, they strip off his armor, they put it in their temple, they fasten his body to the wall of Bethshan, the ultimate insult. There is a small positive note at the end where the people of Jabesh Gilead, who'd been delivered by Saul many years previously, they, they come, they march through the night, and at risk to their own lives, they take down the bodies of Saul and his sons and give them an honorable burial. Now, I don't know what you, you think of Saul. As Simon said earlier, it's easy to, to feel sorry for him. After all, he is human. Like us, he, he is flawed. But we're all flawed. But it does show, doesn't it, just how important obedience and trust is to God. And that is the difference between Saul and David. The reason David was described as a man after God's own heart is demonstrated in his obedience and his faithfulness. He wasn't perfect by any means. He committed some very serious sins. But when he was up against it, he trusted God. Remember the battle against Goliath, which he trusted that God would succeed in that battle. When the opportunity presented to him to to kill Saul, of course Saul had been hunting him. Even though David had done nothing wrong, Saul had the, David had the chance to, to kill Saul. He was presented to him there on a plate. And yet he didn't take things into his own hands. He knew that Saul was still at that moment, the anointed king. And so he trusted in God's timing. David's obedience is mentioned in the New Testament in one of Paul's um, sermons when he says, after removing Saul, he made David their king. God testified concerning him, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. And not only would he do everything God wanted him to do, he showed a love for God's commands. All those psalms that David wrote, that delight that God has, that, that David has in, in God's uh, commands, how he meditates on them. And the lesson from this book in many ways is quite quite simple. To honour God's name 
We need to be faithful and obedient. But the trouble is there are many times when we are not. If we think of some of Saul's mistakes, being impatient, taking things into his own hands, thinking he knew best, seeking his own honor. We're all guilty of those at different times. The key thing is, are we going to acknowledge our guilt? Are we going to seek God's forgiveness and continue seeking God's forgiveness as we do things wrong and turn back to him? Are we going to persist in disobedience and try and justify ourselves and allow our hearts to be hardened? Well, the good news is that God is a God of mercy. That brings us on to our next point, that God's name is honored when we proclaim his mercy. Let's go back to Samuel's farewell speech again in chapter 12. In verse 20, where he says, Do not be afraid. You have done all this evil, yet do not turn away from the Lord, but serve him with all your heart. Do not turn away after useless idols. They can do you no good, nor can they rescue you, because they're useless. But what does he say then? He says, for the sake of his great name, the Lord will not reject his people because the Lord was pleased to make you his own. Which is basically the gospel in a nutshell, isn't it? Even though you've sinned, you've dishonored the Lord by asking for a king. And that sin and its consequence cannot now be undone. Yet there is hope. Don't be afraid. And the reason behind this good news, for the sake of his great name the Lord will not reject his people the reason they need not be afraid that they have neither have no fear that the Lord will reject them that he won't cast them away in spite of their sin the reason is for the sake of his great name isn't that the reason the psalmists are used when they cry out for mercy to God in Psalm 25 we read for the sake of your name Lord forgive my iniquity though it is great Psalm 79, help us, God, our Savior, for the glory of your name. Deliver us and forgive our sins for your name's sake. And that is why we can take great comfort, great reassurance that we will not receive the due punishment for our sin. That we can rejoice in being forgiven because of God's commitment to his name. But what's also interesting is the link between God's commitment to his name and his commitment to his people. Because he says, for the sake of his great name, the Lord will not reject his people because the Lord was pleased to make you his own. God's name and the people he has chosen are closely related. It was God's pleasure to choose Israel out of all the nations on the earth to make them his special possession. That is the covenant that he made with them. But how is God able to honor his name if he doesn't give those people the punishment they deserve? They have done an evil act, they've been told. Surely you think that shows that God is not a God of justice. He doesn't value justice. Well, the reason God can have mercy on his people, that he can spare them his punishment, is because of the sacrifice of his eternal king. In chapter 31, we see that things turned out as the people of Israel were warned they would if their king were disobedient. 
And the book ends on a depressing note. But this is not the end of the story. As we go into 2 Samuel, and remember that the book was actually originally one book, not divided into two, things become much brighter. God's chosen one, David, becomes king. And with God's help, God's blessing, he establishes his kingdom. He defeats the Philistines. He retakes the territory that they had captured. And have a look at chapter 7 of um, 2 Samuel. And the promise that God makes to King David in verse 11. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men, with floggings inflicted by human hands. But my love will never be taken away from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom shall endure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. A descendant of David will build a house for God's name and his kingdom will last forever. That king he's referring to is, of course, Jesus, the anointed one, the Messiah. God was able to overlook the sins of his people because in time Jesus would take the punishment for them. That is how God demonstrates his righteousness. Jesus was willing to be dishonored so that we could be honored. He was mocked, he was flogged, he was crucified, but simply asked for forgiveness for his persecutors. And we honor God's name by proclaiming what Jesus has done for us, by proclaiming God's mercy. Now, the trouble is, bringing it to to today, that that there are a lot of different responses we may be tempted to make when God's name is dishonored. For example, maybe we've become so desensitized to God's name being dishonored that we don't even realize it. It just goes over our heads. That we don't grieve the loss of honor to God's name. Maybe we are aware that his name is being dishonored, but we we know the final victory is his, and therefore we don't even let it bother us. And we give the impression that it doesn't matter. Maybe we are grieved when God's name is dishonored, and we try and fight God's battle for him. We try and make non-Christians behave in the way we think God wants them to behave. And in so doing, we give them the wrong message about what Christianity is all about that they need to live up to these standards if they're going to be made right with God, rather than trust in his mercy and his grace. I'll just give you an example of the last response as I come to a a close in a minute. I'm sure many of you have been watching the Olympics and uh, all our gold medal hopefuls, and uh, it's great to rejoice in them, wasn't it, their achievements. One of um, those who was a gold medal hopeful uh, was Tom Daly, um, looking good in the first round into the semi-finals, but then had a nightmare and uh, came last in the semis. 
Uh, one so-called Christian tweeted, turning gay doesn't seem to have done Tom Daly any favours at Rio. Now that's not just a cruel, it's, a, it's unbiblical and it's totally unchristian. It provides the media with a fuel to criticise Christians as self-righteous and hypocritical. And in short, it doesn't honour the name of God. He might say, well, that's a bit of an extreme example. I would never say anything like that. But there are many ways in which we can be judgmental. Or we can fail to demonstrate the mercy of God. Maybe just failing to forgive those who have offended us. We have so much to be grateful for, so much to share with a world that is lost and in need of God's mercy. And the greatest way in which we can honour God and express our, our faithfulness and obedience is to point people to Jesus and to see them receive his mercy, his forgiveness, and commit their lives to him. Jesus was willing to be dishonoured so that we could be honoured. And so he is the one who deserves all the honour and all the glory.